6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 135 through 144. The last verse will say, I'm giving it to you out of context here, Happy shall he be, he that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. You've got to be kidding. Is that saying what you think it says? Well, we'll take a look as we go. You know, there are many that will say uh, uh, in a naive sort of way, I believe the Bible from cover to cover. But you discover they're ignorant of what's between those two covers. And this is one of those places that will be disturbing. Let's just get in here. It opens up with a locale, the frame of reference here. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. So this is a song, a hymn, that was composed in reference to the time of the captivity. You may recall, Nebuchadnezzar took the nation into captivity, the Babylonian captivity, 70 years. And uh, if we look at a timeline... After Abraham and all of that, we finally get to Moses and the Exodus. And then uh, after the Exodus, ultimately they'll uh, come back and settle the land and go through and the monarchy will emerge and, uh, 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 under David. And then uh, eventually they uh, will uh, get captured by B Babylon. I want to look a little more closely at the period of time that this, this psalm is really echoing, if you will. And... After the monarchy, they go into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They come out of that. And the period after that is called the post-exile period. And uh, we, we have uh, Haggai and Zechariah as the post-exile prophets. And we have the history of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and all of that before we get to the New Testament. But it's interesting that the Babylonian captivity itself doesn't have any record of what's going on inside it. We know they were taken slaves. We know when Cyrus conquers Babylon, he frees them. But there's this 70-year time where we have a little insight. And uh, Babylon uh, conquered uh, the region. The first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, he took the captives that included Daniel and his friends. Um, the, the, uh, they were... They were uh, the, Ezekiel in Babylon and uh, Jeremiah in Jerusalem preached to the people to yield to Nebuchadnezzar. He's the instrument of God. And uh, God is using it as his judgment. And uh, the false prophets convinced the king that, no, they're God's chosen people. We should rebel. And they finally, they did. Nebuchadnezzar puts him down again and changes, puts a different king in charge, subject to him, of course. The second siege takes some more captives. Jeremiah in Jerusalem and Ezekiel in Babylon preach along the lines that yield to Nebuchadnezzar. If you rebel again, he'll destroy Jerusalem. Right now, Jerusalem's run by them. They're enslaved, but they're, they still have their city. Well, again, the false prophets uh, 
talk them into rebelling again. By the time they do that again, Nebuchadnezzar has had a belly full of the whole operation. He levels the place, takes them all uh, slaves. The third siege of Nebuchadnezzar. Important to understand there are three sieges. Many people miss on this. The servitude of the nation begins with the first siege. That's when the nation became captive as a nation. Jerusalem was still subject to them, but uh, in existence. The decree of Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian, conquers Babylon. And uh, Daniel greets him and shows him the letter that God wrote to him 150 years earlier. That's in our book of Isaiah. And uh, he's so impressed because his name, he has his career, his name all mentioned to him, written 150 years earlier. He's impressed with that. He releases them to go home and gives them financial incentives to go home under the decree of Cyrus. So a group, about 50,000, go home to re go back to Jerusalem to, to rebuild. the. It's, it's all in rubbles, but they go to rebuild their temple. The degree of Cyrus starts, the, is in effect, the rule of the Persian Empire as far as Israel is concerned. The desolations of Jerusalem started with the third siege of Nebuchadnezzar. And it isn't until Nehemiah, when they return after Cyrus, under Ezra, they try to rebuild the temple, but they're harassed because of all... They're not in a position to defend themselves. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a meager effort. Until Nehemiah, who is cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes, a successor then to, uh, in, in, uh, in the uh, Greek scheme of things, um, uh, gives Nehemiah the authority to go rebuild the city, the city walls. And so it's under Nehemiah, uh, he, under his term, they're allowed to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now the reason that's so important, the decree of Artaxerxes is the trigger, if you will, to the 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy. It's very important. It's, it turns out to be very precise, very, very thrilling piece of work. But what's interesting, the servitude of the nation was to be 70 years. The, the desolations of Jerusalem were also predicted to be 70 years. But they're not coterminous. The desolations start later and they are relieved. But each one is fulfilled to the day prophetically. But the real point I'm getting at, this is just by way of review for most of you, um, is that what really occurred in Babylon during the servitude of the nation isn't recorded. We know there were slaves, but there isn't a lot of visibility. The psalm we're going to see gives us a glimpse of some of that. That's why I'm going through some of this, okay? Second Chronicles carries us up to about the Cyrus, and then Ezra and Nehemiah follow, as I indicated. And, of course, the book of Esther occurs probably in about the days of Ezra, uh, in which... Uh, uh, it's pretty important because she made possible the situation for Nehemiah to follow later. And if it hadn't been for her, Jerusalem would not have been rebuilt. There would have been a whole different history. The Hebrew nation would probably have been wiped out some 500 years before Christ was born. And it would have changed the destiny of mankind. So the whole saga of Esther is much deeper than most people have any idea. But... Uh, Daniel, of course, and Ezekiel are the prophets in the, in the, during the captivity period. And Haggai and Zechariah are known as the post-exile prophets. Could give you just a historical perspective. And Malachi even later. Let's get back to Psalm 137 now. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. You need to understand, they are in slaves. They're, the rivers of Babylon, those are the canals of Babylon. The Euphrates comes down, but the Babylonians had this elaborate canal system that allowed them to, uh, to reap uh, agricultural benefit. How do those canals get built? By slave labor. 
So you have the Jews there as slaves. And uh, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. They're homesick for what used to be. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. Harps are what they sang with. Were they, were they good at music? What's the history of the Jewish uh, history in music? They are good at it. And they were good at it back then. But they're slaves here. The, the, the psalmist with deep feeling continues. For there they carried us away captive. Required of us a song. And they that wasted us, required of us mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? They feel very deeply about, the psalmist here feels very deeply what, what's going on here. And uh, they know, in fact, the Jew today knows what it means to be in a slave labor camp. Um, to spend time in forced labor and to have forced entertainment. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. This is sort of a pledge of allegiance. It's a um, sort of a pledge that, if, if, that they'll now become obedient to God. They're there in captivity because they sinned. That was God's way of providing judgment on the land. And they knew that. Painfully knew that. They had their families abused. Their women's right, uh, 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 ravished. Their children Killed. I do not. And in, in, in all of this, they remember what it was like when they had Jerusalem and Zion. Very, a lot of pain here. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, "Raise it, raise it, even the foundation thereof." Now, this you need a little background here. Edom was the traditional enemy of Israel. The battle between Edom, Esau, and Jacob started in the womb. The tensions you see in the world today under the banner of Islam started in the womb, even before the, the two were born, interestingly enough. Esau, of course, subsequently becomes the enemy of Israel. He deliberately marries into the Ishmaelite world, and, and we talked about that previously. When Babylon was conquering Jerusalem, the Edomites sang on the periphery Cheering the Babylonians. Their cheering of the Babylonians during the plight of Israel being conquered by Babylon is recorded in many places. One of them is in Obadiah. The whole book of Obadiah is just a little book, but it's all about Edom and the fact that they cheered when the enemies of Israel succeeded over Israel. And they're going to pay for that. God is, the judgment on Edom is coming. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem who said, raise it, raise it. If that's in the old English term, raise meaning burn it. Not raise it like build it. No, raise it like destroy it. Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. That's 
their family people, these are, these are brethren genealogically, cheering uh, for their enemies. And Obadiah says, tear it down, tear it down. We want to be rid of that wicked city is one of the quotes that's in the scripture. And now the people who had survived that deal are now asking for justice. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. So they're looking to a day when Babylon is going to get what they were dishing out. What were they dishing out? That's the last verse of the psalm. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. That's what they did to their captives. There's another way that the Babylonians could limit the future generation of their enemies was to destroy the infants, bash them against rocks in front of their family, of course. You say, that's terrible. That's awful, isn't it? We do it today to our own people, not our enemies, in the wombs of the mother. Where's the most dangerous place for an American to be? In the, womb, in, the, in, the, in the womb of his mother. He's got one chance in four of being murdered. For every four births, there's one abortion. The description of the children's being bashed against the stones is in 2 Kings 8.12, Isaiah 13.16, Hosea 10.14, and maybe some other places. It's so shocking, it's disturbing to try to even talk about. And yet, when you think about it, it's probably the least of the abuses that they suffered as captives. Just as all revisited at Dachau, Auschwitz, and the camps during the Nazi regime. And according to Zechariah 13, it's going to happen again. Worse than ever before. There is a concept in law, lex talionis, law of retaliation. And uh, it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, as Deuteronomy 19, as one place mentions it. That's a principle in law we even have today. The punishment is intended to fit the crime. Maybe not in the primitive ways described in tribal terms, but certainly, it, and retaliation is not revenge. Retaliation means to pay back in kind in a, in a, in a, in a, in a adjudicated sense. The day is coming when God will wreak his, his vengeance. His vengeance. Vengeance is mine, the Lord says. And... Uh, and incidentally, it's a matter of history that Cyrus the Persian, through his general, did exactly that to the Babylonians, what the Babylonians had done to the people of Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus said? Better is a millstone were hanged on his neck than to offend one of these little ones. Or putting another, better than he had not been born than to offend one of the children. No, that, that retaliation is coming because we have a God that is just. 
And we don't want his justice. We want his mercy. There is a uh, comment by Spurgeon that was so eloquent I had to include it. As you read about the... One thing, what makes Psalms so difficult to teach from is that there's so much material. It's really just devotional material that's hard to even summarize fairly. But here's one. I I had to include this quote because people are so shocked by that verse in Psalm 137. Spurgeon says, Let those who find fault with these cures that were not causeless who never seen their temple burned, their city ruined, their wives ravished, and their children slain. They might not, perhaps, be quite so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered after this fashion. It's one thing to talk of the bitter feeling which moved captive Israelites in Babylon. It's quite another thing to be captives ourselves under a savage and remorseless power which knew not how to show mercy, but delighted in the barbarities uh, to the defenseless. The song, speaking of Psalm 137, the song is such as might be fitly sung in the Jews' wailing place. It is the fruit of captivity in Babylon and often has it furnished expression for sorrows which else had been unutterable. It is a gem-like psalm within whose mild radiance there glows a fire which strikes the beholder with wonder. Spurgeon's intensive study on the Psalms is unequaled. Well, let's continue. Let's shift to a... This is the first of eight Psalms that are attributed to David. And uh, they form a special collection just before the final five Hallelujah Psalms that climax the book of Psalms. So this one's about wholehearted praise. And I will praise thee with my whole heart. That's one of those phrases that's easy to say, but... Really, one that requires seriousness. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. We've encountered this term before. The word term is used here often of judges, representatives, anything between you and God as a representative, that that term is used. So it's leadership, if you will. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward the holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name that is quite a statement we know how jealous God is of his name all the way through the scripture it's been an interesting exercise to see how often God refers to his name his authority, his identity and yet here we have an interesting he says for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name That's praise indeed. That's why it shouldn't surprise us that the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest psalm, of course, is Psalm 119, in which it's a highly structured acrostic. 22 Hebrews letters used to to trigger 22 eight stanza quatrains that we looked at a couple sessions ago. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Here we should probably pause and reread Psalm 119 one more time, but we'll go on. Thy word above all thy name. In the day when I cry, thou answerest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. You know, it's interesting in, in uh, verse 4. Jesus is 
prince of the kings of the earth. That's a title in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. He's the one in charge. This says, all the kings of the earth shall praise thee. Remember, in in the climax of Revelation, chapter 19, he's king of kings and lord of lords. There will be universal worship of the living God. But that ain't happening yet, is it? That will happen. They will. And he's going to rule them with a rod of iron. That's all cuts in the millennium, of course. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. You know, it's interesting, after raising our awareness of God to the heights, he quickly points out that he still, despite that, he has respect to the lowly. But those that are proud, he knoweth afar off. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. Who's at his right hand? Jesus Christ. How interesting. Okay? And, uh, and this whole idea of being rich, yet being aware of the poor. Second uh, Corinthians 8, verses 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Also Philippians chapter 2, first dozen verses, known as the kenosis. You might put that in your notes and study it. It amplifies this whole thing here. And uh, I'm always reminded of Hal Lindsay's acronym for the book of Romans, the acronym for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. His right hand shall save me. From here, of course, you can do a whole side study of humility. I couldn't leave it without giving a few things. In Psalm 138, though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect to the lowly, but the proud he knoweth far off. Okay. In Isaiah 57, 15, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also, that is, of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. See how important humility is in God's every breath. Psalm 131.1, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters, nor in things too high for me. That was David's plea back in Psalm 131. In James 4.6, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to who? To the humble, indeed. James 4.10, the next verse, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. 1 Peter 3, 4, let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And the next verse in in Peter again, likewise ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, giveth grace to the humble. There again, echoing the same thoughts there. And the next verse, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Okay, let's move on back to Psalm 138. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever, forsake not the works of thine own hands. This is a prayer. It's analogous to Philippians 1.6 that may be more familiar to your ears. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What God starts, he finishes. We need to embrace that. 
So often we get started, we're very encouraged, we, we roll up our sleeves, get at it, and then life happens. There are obstacles, there's delays, there's, we, we wake up to the reality that God's timetable isn't our timetable. And we all face those things. And uh, this is, Psalm 138, it's sort of an Old Testament way of saying the same thing that, that Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. It's, a, it's both a declaration and also a prayer. And by the way, this is underscored in one very important place. Where would that be? The cross. When he yelled to tell us die. It is finished. He endured that you and I might have life forever. Okay. Now we come to the big one. <laughs> Psalm 139. It's called by many the greatest and most notable and noble of all the Psalms. If you don't jot down any other, remember 139. 139. Because it's going to hit head on the attributes of God. And what are the attributes of God? Well, He's omniscient. What does that mean? Well, God is all-knowing. He knows everything. That's why he can't learn. It's one of the things he can't do. He can't learn, right? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. He's everywhere. He, uh, what Paul Davies, a scientist, said, it says as if the whole universe is nothing more than a thought in the mind of God. He's everywhere. And he's omnipotent. God is all-powerful. All-powerful. Now what we think about God determines what we think about everything else. What we think about everything else derives from what we think about God. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Mm -hmm.